Welcome to Lobster Brain, the podcast that shows you that you can rewire your brain through neuroplasticity. We know about that from studying lobsters. When lobsters fight, their brains change, so both winner and loser can cope with their change in status. As humans, our brains can be rewired too. But unlike lobsters, if we lose, we can still win again in the future. In this podcast, you'll hear from highly successful people, or as we'll be calling them, top lobsters, to discover that with the right mindset, you can bounce back from tough times to be more resilient and win again. I'm Lisa Morton. And I'm Danny Donerkey. Danny, why am I looking at you on a screen under a duvet? <laughs> Lisa, uh, I have to apologise to you and our listeners. It's been an absolute nightmare. I've, I'm currently in Japan. You're in Manchester and I've not got my microphone. I'm sitting between two beds. I've got a, a duvet on my head and I'm very warm. So please accept my apologies. Um, but I'm happy that we can meet virtually. <laughs> At least you got some clothes on because you didn't have any, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I had to. Um, we were flying back from New York to Manchester and I suddenly realized that I got the date wrong for my very important talk in Japan. So we had to abort Manchester and fly direct to London and then Istanbul and eventually now we're in Tokyo and all is well. And it feels great to be here in Tokyo and we're going to be speaking about topics that we're covering here with a lot of um, professional footballers from FIFA and a lot of top lobsters. Uh, so it's going to be great. And in this episode, you're going to hear about some of the lessons we've learned from speaking to our top lobsters. What's the mindset and the experiences that led to their success? Did they share similar qualities which led them to becoming a top lobster? And what's the relationship between success and happiness? So you're going to get some insights into that. Tim Howard was one of the first people that we spoke to, Lisa, about Lobster Brain, and, and he was really excited about the concept. He's a former Manchester United, Everton, and US national team goalkeeper, and he's currently a pundit for NBC Sport. And he's been a friend of mine for years. And you're going to hear Tim's thoughts about the nature of success, pressure, and self-belief. And one of the reasons I was excited to come on this, this podcast is because so many of the things that you all talk about, I firmly believe. And I, 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 I tell my daughter, I tell young players and anybody who will listen, there's this myth out there, Danny, you know it, but there's this myth out there that, that these athletes are soccer players, footballers are, are superhuman. I, I can assure people, youth and fame and money is a horrendous, horrendous concoction. Not many people make it out of that. And the fear for me, you know, I read Roy Keane's books, a, a man I, I admire tremendously. And he said that, that all winning does is postpone the, the fear of losing for another day or two. You know, if you beat Chelsea on Saturday, great. You feel good on su Sunday and Monday. But that fear kicks in again on having to play Arsenal the following weekend. And I often say I, I, every weekend I, 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 had to go to a, I had to go to a dark place. I had to figure out a way to enjoy the pressure because the pressure is so mounting and it's so debilitating. And the pressure on top of your chest um, is so difficult to manage. And when I look at confidence this is a key for me this is a turning point i only learned it late in my career because i was able to verbalize it self-confidence and self-belief are two different things um, most people would say they're they're the exact same and what i've learned is they're different self-confidence ebbs and flows with 
performances and wins and saves and scoring goals and feel good about yourself so you're going to be confident. If you lose, in, in my case, you concede five goals, you're going to be low on confidence. That's, that's normal. That's how the game works. Self-belief is the, is the thing that you put in a box and you lock it and you throw away the key and no one can ever take it away from you. And that self-belief is, yes, we lost. Uh, yes, I haven't kept a clean sheet in three games, but I believe in my ability to do it the next game and to go out. And sometimes you're tricking yourself. That's what self-belief is. Sometimes you're just saying, I can do it, even though recent history says I can't, I still believe I can. So there's a difference in, for me, self-belief and self-confidence. Your self-belief can never, ever waver. But can you teach that, do you think? I mean, obviously you were seen as a leader at Everton. Did you? How did you encourage that in teammates? Because not everybody feels the same way. It's interesting when you ask that question. I, I don't, I think it can be learned, but ultimately the light bulb has to go off. Um, without naming names, Danny will know exactly who I'm talking about. We had a player at Everton who, he was just a monster. He was a beast. We loved him. And I think he was a little bit afraid to perform at times. And the entire dressing room believed so much in him, he more so than he believed in himself. And so there was a collective of the senior players that when we knew he was going to get picked and named in the starting 11, we were on him. And we were saying, you got this today. You're going to, you're going to be a beast. And, and, and continuing to try and pump him up because he didn't have that level of self-belief in him, in himself. Um, so can it be learned? Maybe, maybe I think it has to be over a long period of time. I can relate to that a lot myself, you know, in, I would say that I've got quite, quite good level of self-belief in a lot of ways. Um, but I now find myself in Japan speaking to some of the world's leading footballers and football experts. And in my mind, you're thinking, oh, what, am, what am I doing here? And it takes actual doing it to kind of build the confidence. And then that adds to the part of you that that's hidden away the actual self-belief and it builds and builds through experience. So I think that experience is really important and it builds both the confidence and the belief part. Yeah, I really get what you're saying there, Danny, because I think it's the practice of, of also saying that you're enough and believing in yourself that comes over time. And you know, we've worked together for a long time. When I first met you, my self-belief was shot. You mean, I didn't have any. And that, that had come through you're not having boundaries in place. So because your self-esteem is low, even though, you know, you, you can have confidence in different times, that self-belief wasn't there. And, and that can come through. I see it in people around me, you know, they're in toxic relationships or friendships or they're in a work environment that's not good for them. I got to find self-belief through not beating myself up the whole time for having to be perfect and not listening to, we've had Mo Gowda on the show not listening to that negative voice in my head the whole time was really just thoughts. It wasn't true. And just basically, you know, putting boundaries in place. So, and I have days when I don't feel confident, but ultimately I think, you know what, I'm okay. I'm showing up, I'm doing my best. And that's where, that's self-belief. And I think if people can really work on that and back themselves, because in, inherently we're all good, you know, most of us are good people doing the right thing, I think. That can change your life. Yeah, I think uh, something Lisa said that I think is a really useful practice is to be able to observe the thoughts. You know, one of the reasons that we wanted to start this podcast was to highlight the fact that all of these people who've achieved incredible things in life, we kind of project onto them that these they're these godlike characters. 
But the reality is that they have the same thoughts about themselves that we all have. And it's about being able to observe those thoughts and still act and recognize that they're not, that they're not who you are. They're just thoughts. And that is a practice. It takes time. It takes attention to be able to master that practice of observing the thoughts and observing what's going on and ultimately finding out who you actually are as a person. Rodney Marsh is the person who's shown us the strongest self-belief and he's actually the person who's shown me the strongest self-belief in my whole life. He's a hugely successful person, former footballer, then pundit. He played for Fulham, Queen's Park Rangers, and then when he signed for Manchester City, he was the record signing in the Premier League. He wasn't shy about that price tag. And when it comes to self-belief, you can't really get better than this. I looked at it like this. I am the superstar of a Shakespeare play, and all you other players are there to make me look good. I looked at myself as being bigger and better than, than everybody else. Now, you could say that's arrogant, and you could say that it's, um, you know, uh, cocky or whatever you want to say, or or worse. But for what it's worth, that was my own logic to myself. So I'd never, I never had that. I never had that kind of problem um, at that time with money or without money or buying big cars or um, I, I bought a Jensen and a, an E-Type Jag and, blah, 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 and, all the, uh, and spent fortunes on, you know, gambling and 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 drink and and all that and um and i spent a lot of money because i made a lot of money i went from queen's park rangers to being the highest paid player in Manchester city and so that was i was out there right another one of our top lobsters is former world champion boxer tony bellew he also had that unshakable self-belief that he was going to make it right to the top I was telling people at 50 years old I was going to be a world champion mm. and every single person labelled me a bullshitter. And each time you keep ticking them off, people just keep call, going on and on. You have to f find your way through it and navigate it. And I did, thankfully, but I do understand how people can fall at the first hurdle because, believe you me, I was close to doing that a number of times myself. It's very, very tough to pick yourself back up and go again. That is the hardest thing that a sportsman can do. It, Everything's great when you're winning. It's hunky-dory. You don't see what people are made of when, when they're winning or at the highest of the highs. You see what people are made of and at the lowest of the lows and that's when you really find out who you really are. So, Danny, both Tony and Rodney had unshakable belief throughout their lives at each stage in their career, but they both suffered trauma in their own way, didn't they, as young people? So do you think that's a common link? Yeah, it's definitely commonly so it's something that I come across more and more. One of the things that Lobster Brain is all about is that you can achieve success no matter where you come from. You can hear that Rodney's unshakable self-belief has come from an incredibly traumatic childhood. And just to warn you, you'll hear descriptions of domestic violence here. The belief in myself came from my failure. If I ever did something where I failed at something, my dad would say, Hey, what did you do that for? Why didn't you do this better? We need to train harder. You don't need to do this. You need to be staying out till nine o'clock at night. You missed the penalty. Now we're going to take 150 penalties until you score a 10 in a row. And 
so my my success for myself and my goals for myself came out of the failure of not producing or or being beaten but with by, by my dad with a belt he used to beat me with a belt so coming out of that it was a I'm taking a positive out of this because I'm going to make sure that I'm the best. That's where it comes from, I guess. I mean, I want to just ask a little bit more about that, if I can, about Kennedy and your dad. And I know that a lot of highly successful people have really conflicted relationships with their fathers. And the fathers seem to be that, you know, they've gone on to, to prove themselves to the dad in some way or that dad's been a massive force in whatever journey they've actually taken. So your dad treated you so badly in that piece in the book it makes me feel upset now. And then you put up these barriers then and it affected your relationship yeah. with your dad forever. Ironically, I read that he got you on the first rung of the ladder. He phoned up West Ham and said he's the best lad in London. So how did that yeah. play out? Because you hated your dad for what he did to to you quite rightly at that time but then he clearly did love and respect you want the best for you in his own way I don't know I don't, I don't know the answer to that question all I know was the uh, give a story another another little story okay when my dad was a young man when he was when he was 20 21 he used to live in the in the east end of London before the war so he, he lived in the East End of London in a silly, silly little one one bedroom place that had tw like twelve people in it, and a very very incredibly poor, right? And he went out one Friday night, and they had uh, my granddad had a rule that you had to be in by twelve. So my dad goes out in the East End, and he comes in half past twelve. It's pitch black, and he comes in, he creeps into the house, and my granddad said to him, "Is that you, Billy?" And he went, yeah. And he went and smashed him straight in the face and broke his nose and all the blood came down from his nose. And he had a few drinks and he went to bed. Well, about a month or two later, my dad goes out again. He gets in late again. He's only a kid. He's only 19, 20, around there, right? And my granddad goes to the door again and said, is that you, Billy? And my dad went and smashed him in the face and, and smashed his face up. Left him in the hallway and went to bed. He's laying in a puddle of blood in the, in the hallway, my granddad. 4 a.m. in the morning, my granddad walks into, his, into the room with a hammer and smashes it through his knee. And for the rest of his life, my dad had an enormous great hole in his kneecap. So that's the environment that I grew up in. So when you ask the question about he also loved me, that's true, but it's against the prism and the backdrop of the incredible violence that I knew that my family were involved in. You know, I've listened to that clip a few times now, Danny, and it makes me heartbroken every single time I listen to it. It's so hard. It's so difficult to think about, you know, that's your foundational years. Um, you got to go through that as a young person. And since I've, I've had that conversation with Rodney, I asked him whether or not, you know, 
even though his father treated him like that, he must have looked, did he love him in some way because he wants to further his career? But, you know, I've reflected on that and that can't be love. Maybe that was self-interest that his dad wanted his son to be a football player and it's why I got him to West Ham. I don't know, I can't. I can't excuse any behaviour like that and, and think there's love tied up in there somehow. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, Rod, you heard the story about his own dad. And I imagine that people who come from that kind of upbringing, how can you actually express love? Um, it's a very complicated thing. And, you know, you were speaking earlier about improving your own self-belief. And the best way to do that is to really surround yourself by different people. But if you're in a place where it's impossible to do it and connection and love only comes through a certain a certain form, then it, it's, it's really difficult to speak about. So we're now going to hear from Tony Bellew. And Tony also came from a difficult childhood growing up in a tough area in Liverpool. I don't want to portray to people I've had this bad childhood and I was a beaten kid or stuff like that. I'm just not when you go over the four walls of where I'm from you better be on guard because if you're not people will take advantage of you and you better be able to fight because if you can't fight you better be able to tell a joke because either one of them's going to get you out of trouble if you can fight it's going to get you out of trouble you better be able to make them laugh because if you can't make them laugh and you can't have a fight you're just going to be a victim and that's just how you grow up that, and, and I don't think that's harsh like people go on to me and say it wasn't that bad as a kid growing up. Well, how many fights did you have as a kid growing up and how many fights did you have to defend? And especially having a younger brother who, who was black and gay, which was just impossible in Waverley and Toxted growing up. I fought with grown men as a kid. They, it, didn't, it doesn't frighten me, it doesn't intimidate me. So that's the... I, I, as, as I was fighting, I would always have that emotion and that... I'm going to say anger, I'm not angry, but I would always carry them emotions with me. There's something called post-traumatic stress that most people have heard of. And that is when something traumatic happens and it affects us negatively and we're not able to, uh, to function in life the same following that. But there's also something called post-traumatic growth. And a lot of the successful athletes that we've spoken to, a lot of the successful people in, in all walks of life have experienced that. It makes them more resilient and more capable to deal with anything that's thrown at them because they've already been through something that is unimaginable to most people. But the problem with this is that you it can take you to a certain degree of success and a certain degree of happiness, and at some point, I guess, the bubble bursts and you have to start to question, like, who am I beyond this success that has been come at the back of trauma. It was really interesting, Lisa. One of our Lobster Brain fans the other day uh, came up to me and, and she said that she was thinking of, of starting a business, um, but she, she didn't have confidence it was going to be successful because it didn't come from a place of trauma. And all the people we've spoken to have come from a place of trauma. And, you know, anything great, it seems, has come from that. But I reassured her that it's not necessary to come from trauma to create something brilliant and to create a, a great life. So for all of our listeners, I just want to reassure them that you don't actually have to go through trauma to create something special. So you've got this drive 
coupled with the extreme self-belief like Tony and Rod, which is one way to achieve success. And that's very similar to the top lobster story where lobsters fight to become the top lobster. So we're pretty different to lobsters though, because you definitely don't have had to experience adversity um, to achieve success. Just as we've heard, Danny, you told the woman that you're speaking to this week. And in fact, we've seen that happiness can lead to success too. A fact that's pointed out by another one of our top lobsters, Mo Gaudat. Mo is a chief business officer for Google X, the innovation lab that works on things like robots and self-driving cars. After the tragic death of his son, Ali, Mo now dedicates himself to his mission of helping one billion people learn how to be happy. So let's hear Mo's take on all of this. Mo, you're a bit of a happiness expert. What is what has been your experience of the relationship between success and happiness? Non-existent. <laughs> it's it's quite interesting when we you know most of us are told uh, um, sort of an algorithm you know work really hard study really hard dedicate your life to some kind of a TED talk worthy objective and then when you succeed you'll eventually be happy okay and the truth is. Uh, yeah, the first half of the algorithm is correct. If you work really hard and you know learn very hard and commit yourself to a target, you will succeed. You know, you're more likely to succeed, let's call it this way. But that success is not going to make you happy. I think that bit of the equation fails. So, so often you see people who are extremely successful, you know, rich and famous, and they have fans screaming their names, and they commit suicide. They, you know, the... the there is a misconnection between success and happiness because honestly, it's not success that brings happiness. It's happiness that brings success. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's work on, on the 10,000 hours, the idea that, you know, if you do something frequently enough, you'll end up uh, being one of the best in the world at it and that would make you successful uh, is probably true. And what's the easiest way to do something for 10,000 hours is to do something that you absolutely love. Absolutely, something that you enjoy, something with people that you enjoy being with, with experiences that you you know that enrich you and make you feel uh, committed and interested in what you do. And so, it's not happy. It's not the success that leads to happiness. It's happiness that leads to success. And you know, if if we were to be wise, of course, there are things you have to do every day that are just work. You know, they pay the bills, or they you know teach us something, or they get us through a you know a, a hurdle on the way, but Every now and then, one needs to reflect and say, what is it exactly that I stand for? What is it exactly that I want to learn? What is it exactly that I want to spend time doing? And when you make those choices and end up doing something that you love, you end up being very successful. So I really relate to this. And happiness doesn't come when you achieve your version of success. Because that success can always elude you. And when you you get to some pinnacle, you want to, to go again. And you know, through business and through the the communities I'm in, you know, I do know lots of extremely wealthy people. And some of those wealthy people are extremely wealthy, but empty. They're unhappy. And they collect stuff, like they collect watches, and they collect cars, and they collect amazing holidays, but they come back and they're still empty. And um, some of them are enlightened enough to know that whatever they're doing now, their success is not happiness, which is really interesting. And they're on a journey. But it's so great. So a couple of days ago, I'd arranged to have a coffee with somebody that I've known for 10 years. I see him in the gym twice a week. 
and we always say hi and we know each other. We've never sat down and I've seen him change, like completely change as a person in four years. And and I didn't really know why, but he looks great. And so we had a coffee and we were ch- going to chat about some charity stuff, but we ended up talking about success and happiness, bizarrely. He'd gone through trauma. He'd come through a toxic divorce. He'd not seen his kids for some time. He lost everything, but he's now extremely successful again. He has got a beautiful partner. He sees his kids. His business is flying. And he said, but I remember when I had nothing and I was living in a little terraced house... I was going out the front door, lived opposite a park. I'd go to the shop. I'd say hi to the the shopkeeper. He said, I was really happy, even though I had all these challenges. And now he's in a great place. He's in the best place he's ever been. But he said, I'm actually just keep checking myself because I don't want this trajectory of my business to be the thing that I'm striving for again, the thing that I'm going for, the business success to make me happy. He said, because I'm happy with the small things. And you know what? He looks amazing. And the fact that he knows that means that he's a changed person and he's got it. He's got what Mo Kodak's saying. Yeah, Lisa, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because yesterday I was speaking to uh, one of the most successful international footballers in recent history. And I asked him, when was the happiest period of his career? And his answer really surprised me. He said that the happiest period of his career was when he retired. Uh, and then he, he, he tracked back and said, no, actually, it was when I left. Uh, he, was, he was in a really big league and he left to a smaller league. So he felt that the pressure had, had turned off. So in a very similar vein, in a completely different field, you know, he'd spent his whole life working to get to the top. And actually being at the top, the pressure of it was so great that he couldn't enjoy it. And... Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I'm here with FIFA and one of the things I'm talking about is how can we help these young people enjoy and live with the huge pressure of being at the top. And as you know, Anna Ivanovic achieved success at a very young age from doing something that made her happy. Tennis was something that she just loved. As soon as she saw a tennis racket, she loved tennis. I started playing tennis when I was five. Back in Serbia, I no one in my family played tennis. I watched on TV. I really liked Monica Seles because she was born in Yugoslavia. And uh, I just forced my parents to sign me up for tennis school. And first, they were reluctant. My mom tried to give me to dancing classes, which was not very successful. Um, and then for my fifth birthday, my father brought me a small tennis racket. And that's how I started. And uh, yeah, so basically, a while ago... <laughs> That shows such kind of grit and determination at such a young age, though. So were you driven as soon as you kind of held that racket? Did you know that was for you? Absolutely. I I must say I always had this, in a way, a little bit stubborn character, but also very passionate. So if I really liked something, I would do it 100%. And when I stepped on tennis court, I just felt that's my thing. And I was very very shy as a child, very introvert. So uh, for me, tennis was my world. So even as I was growing up, I spent much more time with my tennis peers rather than my school peers. So that was um, where I felt more comfortable. When I was 16, I played quarterfinal in the French Open. Then a year before I won as a 19-year-old, I reached final of uh, French Open. I won many big events and um, it just felt very natural. And I was in a flow I didn't think about anything. And like I said, at that time, there was no social media. I remember 
before a French Open semi-final, I was playing against um, Jankovic, and it was between two of us, whoever wins that match was going to become number one on following Monday. And my team managed to hide that fact from me. So I was just focused on my game. I didn't think about what will be. And nowadays, there is no chance you can hide anything for two minutes. No. Um, so I remember after the match when they asked me and I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? I, I had no idea. And this was the beauty. I was really in the moment. I was in a flow. And later it became so much more about other things and consequences and my analyzing things. And I must say, of course, withdrawing from the Olympics in 2008 when, when I was number one um, in Beijing, that was very, very hard and very emotional for me. It was, of course, everyone wants to play Olympics and, and for their country. But I had also in 2010, I had a, a big drop in the ranking. And um, that was a very tough year. I, I really, I felt lost. A lot of my team has changed for many different reasons. But I really found it super hard. And I was even thinking, do I want to continue? Because it was really stressful to, to even be on a court every day. And again... A lot of things might have not been reality. A lot of things might have been in my head that I created them. But um, from then on, I really tried to challenge myself. Like I said, I loved, I was never afraid to work on myself. So I would go back and think and think. And, and within this thinking, something clicks. And then <laughs> like you start to get back on that more positive um, thought pattern. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's energy. And what we create is what we get. So Anna Anna speaks about what happened, Lisa, when she fell out of that flow state because the expectation became too great. Tony Bell, you also achieved flow state and describes it really well. Flow state, I've had that a number of times. Fights have slowed down. The David Hay fight was one of them. Everything he'd done was slow motion. I could see every single thing he was doing. Boom, I could slip slide. I didn't have a mark on my face in the second fight. My performance that day was on another level. People are so successful when they're in that flow state because they're not thinking. We get taught at school to sit down and start thinking with the rational mind, the rational brain. And that gets in the way like it did with Anna. So when Anna started thinking about, oh, why am I in this second French Open uh, final? I'm world number one. Oh, how, how am I going to do this? Those thoughts got in the way of the natural flow of her own rhythm and her own technique that she'd honed for her whole life. So when you're fully engaged in the moment, you can respond to how the other player hits the ball. And you can respond to when something goes wrong in business, you can respond to it immediately rather than being caught in the mind and caught in the thoughts. Now, I think the big question is for everyone, how to stay in that flow state for more of life. And that's a question for all of us, isn't it? Even in sport or in, in any other walk of life, how do we get into a flow state in our lives, not just in sport? Yeah. So for you, the listener, to achieve flow state, it's actually very simple. And it's just a case of building in ways in, in your life to remember and remember and remember to practice being present and basically the body is always present and it's the mind that takes us into either the past or the future and you just have to remember to keep coming back to the body and sometimes in life 
you know, a lot of our, our guests have, have been through very traumatic experiences and it's quite tempting to come out of the body in those kinds of environments. But if you actually experience the moment fully, then there's a lot greater sense of peace. And yeah, I've been fortunate in my life, Lisa, that, you know, you, you've met my dad now. Um, and he helped me from a very young age um, begin to experiment with being present and being in flow. And the more and more that you can practice this, the more happiness and peace that you can experience in any situation. You know, meditation, it's not about going and sitting on your, on your cushion and being present while you're meditating and then just living a hectic, chaotic life. The only reason really to meditate is to make you realize the moment that's happening every moment in life. And, you know, there's so much that happens that we miss that is full of beauty. It's a huge thing that we can all access at any moment. We've been talking about happiness and success and whether success equals happiness and not according to Willie Donachie. Willie is a footballer who had a distinguished career playing for Manchester City, Burnley, Oldham Athletic and the Scottish national team. He's been a coach and a manager for many years and he also happens to be Danny's dad. I didn't like mixing with the boss sort of thing. I wanted to be with the, the workers. <laughs> that kind of comes back nicely to the top lobster, doesn't it? So if you if you associate yourself in your mind with not the top lobster, uh, then that's where you're going to stay, isn't it? It wasn't so much, don't think, the, the school I went to, the secondary school I went to, I came from quite a rough area, but the school I went to was a posh area, and I hated it, because they, they didn't like us. There was about five or six of us from where I went, was from, went to this, was a grammar school. We like posh kids, had their own homes and all that. And the teachers sort of ridiculed us in a lot of ways. You know, it would be bullying and all the rest of it. Then it was just like the way it was. I think that may have had part of effect, the bosses and stuff. So in terms of like your life and all the top lobsters that you've met, like how, how many of them have, that you've come across have you found of being happy and live fulfilled lives and and how do you compare that to the ones who aren't the top lobsters? It's a really good question. I think top lobster in the sort of in the world worldly terms, I don't know any that are happy. But there's some top lobsters who are sort of like Joe's a a sort of naturally quite happy person. But still not real happiness. The real happiness is within deeply within and then when you get that happiness and good and bad comes you can handle them whereas if you've not got that happiness good and bad comes and you're like over the moon and then like want to kill yourself boss you can you cannot really you can be over the moon but not claim it just realize that this is the effect of a lot of people's work not just you it's no down to you what I love about what your dad says, Danny, is that um, he's so kind of pragmatic and there's no drama with your dad, is there? And the 
you know, he's saying that don't claim the highs, don't claim the lows. You're going to get highs, you're going to get lows. It's about, and also those highs and lows aren't just you. It's the dynamic of the world that's going on around you. So, you know, it's a bit like Alistair Campbell said in one of our interviews. Um, and also people don't really care. So don't get kind of caught up in that moment too much and have a word with yourself, I think he's saying. Yeah, it's funny with, with my dad because I, you know, as you know, I post on LinkedIn quite a bit. And if I ever post anything that's kind of, like I, I'm not, I'm not someone who's like a boastful person. But if if there's anything that's kind of like you know, oh, this is going well, he'll always put a comment saying, uh, "Not this, not this," or "Or don't believe the success." So he's always there for me to make sure that my feet are firmly on the ground, uh, it, just in case I needed it. Someone who sums all this up really well is Biet Simkin. Biet has achieved huge things as a spiritual guide to the stars, and she's also come through trauma. Yeah, so Biet, she went through a, a, a lot of trauma in her life. She she lost many of her family members, her whole house burnt down, and she was a heroin addict. And despite that, she still kind of maintained this spiritual essence, spiritual connection. And I think a big part of it was her own connection with her father, who was a shaman. And Biet is a brilliant example of somebody who lives a full practical life and has a deeper connection to what Lisa Miller would call spirituality, what other people would call something else. Um, but I think it's just an awareness of the magnitude of life itself. Biet has similar levels of self-belief to Rodney Marsh, which carries her through success and failure, which we heard about when we talked to her about a huge event she'd planned for Madison Square Gardens, and it got cancelled just a few weeks before it was scheduled. Do you know how when you... Like for anyone who's like single or whatever, when you like have a crush on someone, you can kind of tell like if they don't like you, you know? And so when it is revealed to you that they don't like you, you're kind of like upset, but you're also like, I knew that, you know, I knew. And so I knew and, and I felt like there's no such thing as time. And there was this ability to relax and sense like just as well as I knew that this Madison Square Garden opportunity was going to fall through, I also know that I'm slated for even more greatness on this planet, even more effect. And I will touch the hearts of millions of people. So what does it matter whether this little event happens or doesn't happen? And remembering that these little things can't stand in the way of that. And also remembering that nothing will stand in the way of me dying. Because I think a lot of us do things that are triumphant or successful because we want to avoid the feeling of grief that we feel of our inevitable mortality. And for me, just accepting on a daily basis that my death is a part of all of this. And so is the death of my children and my husband. Like it's all coming, hopefully not before I die, but you know, it's coming one day. And then just living with that grief and having it be a part of all my joy rather than being like, I'm going to be so rich and so skinny and so hot that I'll never feel anything and then I'll never die, which, as we know, doesn't work at all. I love the way that Biet approached that change um, in her life. It was a, a major event for her and it didn't happen. And although she felt that disappointment, she knew that there was something else was intended for her. And um, in a way, we talked about being in flow state, but this is kind of being in flow with life, that 
what's life showing me now? And it was showing her that that gig wasn't for her, so there was something else. And she was very kind of chilled about that rather than thinking it was the worst thing that had happened to her and feeling that sense of disappointment and beating herself up. Yeah, and I love I love the way that she talks about death because for me, like this moment that we're experiencing right now will only ever happen once in the universe. And when it's gone, it's gone. And each moment there is a small death and it's not looking at death in a, a negative way. It's embracing the beauty of the fact that we're actually here each moment to experience this full life. And I think uh, Biet kind of sums it up really well. And the fact that she's experienced so much actual death in her life has really focused her mind on the present moment because we never know how long this life will actually last. Let's have some final thoughts from Dr. Lisa Miller. Dr. Lisa Miller is a professor at Columbia University in New York, and she was a pioneer because she studied spirituality in an area of science that was completely against spirituality, and she's done that for many years. Dr. Miller has profound thoughts on the awakened brain, and I, I know there's a lot of long words that we're using here, but you don't need to be put off by words like awakened brain because all of us, all of us have a connection to the wider world, the wider universe. And I'm sure that you've experienced at some point in your life, this flow state and all the awakened brain means is that you're in, you're in contact with the flow state. So if you're sitting, listening to this podcast right now, how can you get in touch with the flow state? And I'm pretty sure even by thinking about presence and by hearing about presence and the flow, it naturally brings us into a more awakened state. And in this state, we feel life more fully and more richly, and it's a more peaceful journey through life. In school, all of us very honestly come to build the muscle of our achieving brain, which is how we you know, line up A plus B plus C to go get that big red door. And we do need tactics and we need strategy and it's helpful in life to have traction to implement and go get. But achieving awareness alone is completely inadequate to handle life's challenges, to handle the past three years of the global pandemic and dual pandemic, the virus and the mental health consequences. Life is about 10% controllable and then 90% full of dynamism and flux and surprises. And when we realize that achieving awareness alone is not going to do it, we start in those moments to open up another part of ourselves, our awakened awareness. And awakened awareness allows us to stop asking that constant achieving question. What do I want? How am I going to get it? Oh, no, I'm not going to get it. How am I going to get it now? And shift the conversation with life from what do I want and how am I going to get it to what is life showing me now? And even more deeply, what is the spirit in and through life, this loving, guiding presence in and through life showing me now? And whether it's through meditation that we dial in, or for some people, they'll say nature is my cathedral. And in nature, I suddenly have clarity and spontaneous awareness. Their dialogue, the spirit is in and through nature. Or for some people, prayer. I ask God with my whole heart, and in my mind's eye or in the day ahead unfolds an answer. 
So when we shift from treating life like we're ordering on Amazon to saying, wow, I'm not a maker of my path hardcore sealed up. I'm much more of a discoverer on a journey. And it's a journey with surprises, and some are very unwanted. They yield to a life that is still big and good and strong. And some are delightfully just breathtaking like the birth of a child. But we become really much more like hikers on a long trail. And we show up for each other as trail angels, but we don't know where we're going, really. We're more we're explorers. We're on a quest. It was great to hear uh, Dr. Miller's wisdom again. And she provided many of the incredible lessons that we've heard on Lobster Brain. The thing that I really love about that clip is she refers to human beings as being hikers on a long trail. And I think that's such a great analogy for life. We're all on a long trail and there are going to be some downhill bits and there's some uphill bits. And bits where you need to rest and then bits when you're on like the peak of the mountain and you can't get over the view. And there are some times when you need, on that trail, somebody to physically push you along. We have to embrace the difficult experiences we're going to have on that long hike, that long trail. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. We'll be back in a couple of weeks chatting to another top lobster about the obstacles they've overcome in order to rewire their brain for success. In the meantime, please remember to rate, review and follow. That way, more people will get to hear about Lobster Brain and the next episode will drop into your feed as soon as it's available.